The reason that the population turned against Somoza was not because of the earthquake itself, but because it turned out that the billions of dollars of aid that was being sent from around the world for recovery efforts for the earthquake were just stolen and looted by Somoza. He just pocketed everything. And so the city was not rebuilt. Revolutions are a process. A lot of people think that with the Nicaraguan Revolution, they'll say, well, the revolution happened on July 19th, 1979. No, the revolution continues. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. We're going down the trail of revolution once again, and we're going to talk about not only the counter-revolutionary forces, but we're going to talk in particular about my friend Dan Kavalik's book, Nicaragua. Dan Kavalik graduated from Columbia Law School in 1993 and currently teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He's written extensively on the issue of international human rights and U.S. foreign policy for the Huffington Post, Counterpunch, and RT News, and has lectured throughout the world on these subjects. He is the author of several books, including The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, How the U.S. is Orchestrating a Coup for Oil, and of course, the book that we're about to talk about, which is Nicaragua, a history of U.S. intervention and resistance. Dan, thank you so much for joining me, sir. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This book is powerful. I bought it several weeks ago with the intention of talking to you today. This book was compelling. It was very hard to put down. And I'm a 50-something dude. I was born in 69, the summer of love. So some of the things that you talk about in this book were very relevant in my early years as I was growing up. And some of the references you made brought back some really rough nostalgia in the Reagan era. So I want to thank you and scream at you all in the same breath. It was a beautiful book. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So for those of us who have not read the book and are maybe unfamiliar with your work, what was your purpose for writing this book? Where did it come from? Well, I've had a lifelong love of Nicaragua really stemming from my visit there for the first time in 1987. I was 19 years old and it was very life transforming and I've been very dedicated to Nicaragua and the Sandinista revolution since that time. And I really was finally inspired to write the book because of a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that's being put out there, particularly since 2018, which we'll talk about what happened then. But the propaganda against Nicaragua was very, very thick 
right now. And I felt, and some friends who encouraged me to write the book felt that it really was time to do a book on Nicaragua, putting all the historical pieces together to show what they're up against. The very beginning of this book caught me off guard. The story of your schooling years and the kids that you went to school with in particular, and there was two children at your school. There's no way to have written this story better. Can you tell us about the opening story here? Yeah, so I was in a little Catholic school called St. Andrews. There were probably 50 kids in total in the whole school. And in the fall of 1979, and I would have been 11 at that time, I was born in 1968, the summer of revolution, June 21, first day of summer, 1968. So I was 11 at this time, fall of 1979, and these two boys started the school, Juan and Carlos Garcia. And it was interesting to have them, one, that they were immigrants from Nicaragua. We all knew that. We all knew that they came because of, I think they portrayed at first the civil conflict over the summer. The other interesting thing, especially in retrospect, I didn't understand the meaning of this so much at the time, but they were very big physically. Juan, in fact, became the center for our basketball team, which if you know anything about basketball, <laughs> that's the tallest position. Kareem played that and Will, the stilt Chamberlain. They were very physically big. They spoke English. The point is, again, in retrospect, I would find these are not your typical Nicaraguans. And at some point I asked them, I said, well, what did bring you here to the United States? And they said that their father had been the president of Nicaragua and that he was overthrown in a revolution over the summer, meaning that their father was, in fact, Anastasio Somoza. Wow. Wow. <laughs> when you had that revelation, that's wild. Yeah. Well, again, I was 11. Now I was a very political kid, mostly because my dad was very political. So I had a little sense of what that meant, but not a lot. I couldn't tell you at that moment who I thought the good guys were and the bad guys were. And I think at this point, there wasn't even a lot of news about it or propaganda because this is right after the revolution. So people are just learning. And then the revolution took people by surprise, by the way. No one knew what a Nicaragua was in this country at this point. But I was obviously curious. Oh, okay. So there was a revolution. I got that and overthrew your dad. So I don't know. Was your dad a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Anyway, I do think it was very important to me in the sense that it at least made me curious about what was happening in Nicaragua and what was happening in Central America. It put it on the map for me in a very significant way. And again, as I got older, it meant more to me. I was like, wow, did that really happen? Recently, there was a reunion of my class, which graduated in 82. We had our 40th anniversary last year. Oh, okay. And I talked to some old friends and I was like, remember those guys? They remembered the details of them that I did. So, yeah, that was a crazy coincidence in my life and probably did set me down a certain path. I have a feeling I'd write a book about Nicaragua, too, if I found out that that was the way it started. But your life really went beyond that, though. You have been to Nicaragua a lot of times. 
for a long time and you've been an instrumental part of things there. It's not like you're just a grifter. You were doing things. You were working with people in particular. One of the guys you highlight in the book, I believe his name is Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson, not the beach boy. <laughs> you have to say, right. The other Brian Wilson, the revolutionary Brian Wilson, right? The humanities Brian Wilson. I think that's another neat story to highlight before we jump into the history of it all. They say, give your arms and legs. He literally gave his legs to the cause, so to speak. Yeah. So when I literally landed in Nicaragua for the first time at age 19 was September 1, 1987. And this would have just happened to him. And I found out about it when I landed, I was told, I didn't know who he was, but I was quickly told who this guy was and what happened to him. So he was, first of all, an interesting guy. He was a lawyer by trade. He fought in Vietnam. He volunteered for Vietnam. He's actually from around Jamestown, New York, which is in the northwest of the state of New York. It's where Lucille Ball's from as well. He's from kind of middle America, and he joined up to fight in Vietnam. Because of his education, he quickly moved up in the ranks, and they gave him a job. He was an Air Force captain, actually. But the job they gave him in Vietnam was to survey the dead and casualties and damage done by U.S. Air Force bombings and raids in Vietnam. And after five weeks of doing this in Vietnam, he saw a certain pattern, and that was he determined that pretty much everyone being killed was women and children. Mm. We're not killing any soldiers mm. here. And he wondered, as any rational human being would wonder, is this on purpose or is this just an accident? What's going on here? So he actually, on his own, flew to Saigon and met with his commanding officer. And he said, what's going on here? This is what I'm finding. Is this what's going on? And the guy confirmed, yeah, this is pretty much what's going on. These are our targets. Because we're more or less in these areas, we're targeting everything that moves. There's even a book called Kill Everything That Moves by Nick Terse about this, that we were basically killing all life forms in these areas, man, women, child, elderly, which, of course, Brian found to be reprehensible. And he basically bided his time at that point till his tour duty was over, but he lost all interest in any faith in what he was doing. So he came back and he joined Veterans for Peace, which was an organization founded mostly by Vietnam veterans who turned against the war, and he became a peace activist. And then at some point again in 1987, he helped organize this demonstration. What it was is they were going to sit on the railroad tracks in front of a train in California that they knew was bound for Central America with arms shipments. And he went to this train track for weeks before he did the action, and he noticed that to his comfort, the train only went about five miles an hour and that it slowed down or stopped if someone or something tried to cross the track. So he felt like it was safe to do this action. He was willing and ready to go to jail for doing this, but he did not want to be killed. That has to be pointed out. He did not have a death wish. <laughs> right. But as it turned out, on the day in question, he and his comrades 
sat down on the tracks. The train came. By the way, they informed the government they were going to do this. So the train conductor knew that they were there and would be there. But the train, instead of slowing down as it normally would, it actually sped up. Wow. And everyone jumped off the tracks except Brian, who got stuck. He was unable to get off in time. He tried to get off, and he got hit by the train. And he woke up about a week later, and when he woke up, one of the first things he said to the nurse was, wow, my feet hurt so much. Can you do something about it? And they said to him, Mr. Wilson, you don't have any feet. Oh. Because I believe both his legs were cut off above the knee. He lost part of his shoulder and he lost part of his brain. So he became a legend, particularly in Nicaragua, but also in the rest of Central America for this action. And as I mentioned in the book, Rosario Murillo, who is the wife of Danny Ortega, she's also the vice president. She wasn't vice president at that time. She was the wife of Danielle at the time. She flew with all their kids to California to the hospital to sit with him during his convalescence, which was an amazing thing. And he's now a hero of Nicaragua. So that's Brian Wilson. And he and I are very good friends. And he lives in Nicaragua now. He's lived there for some time. And he is very dedicated to the revolution. And they're very dedicated to him. He's a national hero there. Those are the kind of heroes you want to have more of. You definitely want to have people that are committed, not milk toast, not lukewarm, but really understand that they may be the only thing standing between people and their life. And that was just very powerful. Sending arms down there, especially to the counter-revolutionary forces, which is a little jumping ahead because I want to start discussion here. Going back to the Somoza takeover of Nicaragua, they were in charge for a very long time, and it was handed down from generation to generation. Tell us a little bit about the Somoza takeover of Nicaragua. Yeah, so the story really begins in around 1910. The U.S. Marines invaded to depose a president named Jose Zelaya, who was a social reformer, a small-D Democrat. He was a good guy, but he was not that friendly to U.S. businesses, including some Folks actually from Pittsburgh, where I'm located, who wanted to open up a gold mine there, and he denied a license to them. And they happened to be friends with the Secretary of State, Knox, also from Pittsburgh. And they went to him and said, hey, this is a lie, guy. He's not playing ball with us. And so they sent in the Marines to depose him, which they did successfully. And this began a marine occupation of Nicaragua, which lasted until 1933. Now, ultimately, the Marines were kicked out by the guerrillas, led by Augusto Sandino, who organized this band of mostly peasant guerrillas to attack the Marines and to drive them out of Nicaragua, which they did successfully, which was an incredible victory for these very poorly armed. Again, mostly peasant people. The Marines were driven out, but before leaving Nicaragua, they had organized and left in place the National Guard, these repressive security forces led at that time by the first Samosa, Anastasio Samosa. And when the Marines left, 
Augusto Sandino, who had led the resistance to the Marines, was invited to Managua by the president to sign a peace agreement because, well, the view even Sandino had was, well, I did what I really wanted to do, and that is get rid of the Marines so now we can have a democracy, which I also wanted. So he was willing to sign this peace agreement, which he did, but then on his way out, he was murdered. And so was at least one of his other generals, and his body was disappeared. His remains have never been found. So the revolution in that sense was put down by chicanery. And Somoza, who was leading the National Guard, soon declared himself the president, really dictator of Nicaragua in 1934. And with the U.S. backing, he and his two sons ruled Nicaragua with an iron hand until 1979 when they were overthrown by the Sandinistas. This country has been so propagandized. It has no concept of revolution, counter-revolution. Even though we struggle in this nation, we see tent cities, poverty, and all kinds of horrific conditions throughout the U.S. for the working class. We just think that those are just the people at the bottom because they're not good people and they deserve to be there. And so we just walk right past them. But this revolution in particular, I remember the name Danielle Ortega as a child. I can harken back to hearing that name. And it wasn't said with the kind of reverence it probably should have been. It was said with almost derision and hate. Like this guy was the bad guy. It doesn't make sense to me how little knowledge we have of the struggle of the peoples outside of the domestic U.S. As you saw the Sandinistas develop their populist movement and then begin a revolution, what was it that finally put the Sandinistas in a position to take action and what was the catalyst for it? Well, so first of all, the Sandinistas were founded in 1961 to overthrow the dictatorship. And as the name suggests, Sandinista refers to Sandino, Augusto Sandino, the guerrilla leader who got rid of the Marines and then was killed. So they were named in honor of him, Sandinistas. And they began to organize. They had a two-front war, if you want to call it that, against Somoza. One was a military one mostly in the mountains and rural areas. And then they had a more political one, organizing people throughout the country, including in the urban sectors, organizing workers and unions and whatnot, also to resist Samosa. But it was pretty slow going till about 1972. There was probably up to that point, a couple to a few hundred guerrillas at that point. But what really pushed the population at large over to their side and against Somoza was the earthquake of 1972, which pretty much leveled Managua. In fact, if you go to Managua today, you'll only see a couple tall buildings, and they're buildings that were left over from before the earthquake. They don't build tall buildings anymore because they actually expect another earthquake. And the reason that the population turned against Somoza was not because of the earthquake itself, but because it turned out that the billions of dollars of aid that was being sent from around the world for recovery efforts for the earthquake were just stolen and looted by Samosa. He just pocketed everything. And so the city was not rebuilt. He didn't do any recovery. He just stole everything. 
And in fact, as I mentioned in the book, there's this Pittsburgh connection because Roberto Clemente, that we call him the great one here in Pittsburgh, it was a great baseball player, played for the Pirates for, I think, nine years. Oh, yes. Had 3,000 hits, which is kind of a big number. And he was sending aid himself and organizing drives for Nicaragua. And he read in the newspapers that Somoza was stealing all the aid. So he said, well, geez, I'm organizing all this aid and I'm sending aid down, but it's probably not getting to the people. So he ended up deciding to fly himself from Puerto Rico. He was Puerto Rican to bring aid to Nicaragua, but his airplane blew up on the runway. So he became a martyr, too, for Nicaragua and the Sandinistas, and he still is a big figure there in Nicaragua. But the point is that it became well-known that Somoza was stealing all the aid. And this really showed how corrupt Somoza was. He did nothing to develop the country. He just used it as his private piggy bank. And anyone who said boo was killed or put in jail by the National Guard, which continued to be the repressive apparatus of the state that, again, the Marines had created and organized back in the 1930s. So between 72 and 79, the organizing against the dictatorship begins to really pick up. The Sandinistas begin several major actions against the dictatorship. But the major insurrection finally begins in 1978, where they decide that they have the forces and they have the support to try to overthrow Somoza by force. And during this time, between 78 and the triumph of the revolution on July 19th, 1979, Somoza, with the help of the U.S., which is almost the sole supporter of him militarily and otherwise, kills 50,000 Nicaraguans trying to put down the insurrection. And that's a huge number because there are only about 2.5 million Nicaraguans at that time, mostly by aerial bombings. So because there was such massive support for the Sandinistas throughout the country, he just began to bomb his own cities indiscriminately to try to put down the unrest. And again, he killed 50,000 people in that process. But also, while that had some effect of setting back the revolution, in fact, of course, it inspired more resistance. People began to become even angrier when they see their own government bombing their cities. <laughs> and so finally, the tide became so great that the dictatorship collapsed. And on July 19th, 1979, the Sandinistas marched into Managua and they took over the government, which was an incredible feat. If you go to YouTube, you look up Sandinista Triumph, You'll see incredible videos of just regular people in the plaza, the big government plaza there, which is now the plaza of the revolution. And they're literally hanging from the balcony of the church, which, by the way, is still rubble, which they've left as kind of a memorial to that period. But the church had been destroyed largely by the earthquake. And the Sandinista government has done some things to make it cosmetically nicer, but it's never been fully rebuilt. And you can see people literally just hanging outside the windows of it and in the plaza, just cheering, hugging each other, crying that they had managed to do the impossible. And no one expected this to happen in the world, that they very poorly armed 
They fought with bricks, with rocks, with handmade weapons. They got a little help from Fidel Castro, but not much, and not from anyone else. The communist movement didn't think that they were going to win, so they didn't get much support from them. So they overthrew this heavily armed dictatorship that was backed by the United States. And this was really a David and Goliath story. Indeed. Yeah. And in the 80s, they had a lot of popular support. And I mentioned this in the book, The Clash. Their last album was called Sandinista. There was a movie with Nick Nolte, which was pretty pro-Sandinista. They became kind of this mythical force. And a lot of people visited Nicaragua in the 80s. And there was just a lot of excitement around the revolution. People get excited about revolutions, and they should, especially when it's poor people overthrowing this corrupt dictatorship, which it was. That was the revolution. You bring up some really important points in the book. And one of the things, you kind of touched on it earlier by saying they were peasants, but the pure poverty of the region, it was ridiculous. Kids without shoes and the clothing was worn down to where it was basically see-through and food was non-existent. You even told a tale of why you were sitting there having lunch and Kids are standing there at the window begging and how tremendous getting through a revolution is while dealing with the counter-revolution that creates the poverty 10 times full. Because now you're not only dealing with the wreckage from the revolution, now you're dealing with even more bloodshed and more poverty as the counter-revolution decides to try and take back whatever gains the revolution was able to produce. Talk a little bit about the poverty of that time. It was amazing because, again, Samosa did nothing for the country. He didn't bother to pave roads. He didn't bother to bring electricity to people or water or sewage. Again, it was his fiefdom. He used the country as his piggy bank when he was overthrown. He fled Nicaragua and he took the entire treasury with him. And so the country was very poor. And the people were very poor and neglected and had no infrastructure to speak of. And this is what the Sandinistas inherited when they took over. And again, with no treasury because it had been robbed. But they immediately tried to engage in poverty alleviation, land reform, giving land to poor peasants, had a major literacy campaign. By the way, this week is the anniversary of that literacy campaign in which 100,000 Nicaraguans volunteered to go to the countryside and teach people to read and write. They instituted free education, free health care, and they really began to try to improve this country, really from the ground up and from scratch, a country that had been neglected for so long. But the revolution was never given any oxygen. Jimmy Carter, as he's leaving office, actually flies these National Guard leaders out of Nicaragua to Honduras, by the way, in planes marked with Red Cross insignia, which is a war crime because they weren't Red Cross planes. And very quickly, the CIA and the Argentine junta, which at that time was fascist, if you know about that period in Argentina, began to train these National Guardsmen into what became the Contras, which was this terrorist organization which would terrorize Nicaragua for the next 10 years, which would destroy the economy, which would 
undermine a lot of the gains of the revolution, and in addition, kill another 30,000 Nicaraguans on top of the 50,000 that Somoza killed in the last year of the insurrection. And that Contra war began in earnest in the spring of 1981. So less than two years after the triumph, less than two years, now the Sandinistas have to fight a major conflict against U.S.-backed terrorist force. And so the revolution really had very little chance to get off the ground. And again, when I went there in 1987, which was a rough year, so the first several years of the revolution were pretty exuberant, even with the Contras, because the gains continued to be made slowly, notwithstanding the Contras, and people were excited about the revolution. And there was a certain, as I understand it from people who were there at the time, esprit de corps and elation amongst the people. But by 1987, people started to get worn down by the Contra War. And the economy had been battered by not just the war, by U.S. sanctions, a U.S. embargo. The CIA was attacking, you know, blowing up oil installations and mining the Nicaraguan harbors. So by 1987, the people were really feeling desperate. And again, economically, the country was really suffering. And I saw that. And that's the stories I tell about the kids sure. without shoes and literally in rags that I saw. And again, there was a fighting spirit, but they were starting to get worn down. And, and the people were really suffering by that time. And so I came to Nicaragua, not at the best time for the revolution. It was a difficult time. But it was still very inspiring just to see these people, very poor people, struggling against, again, the colossus of the North, the United States that was supporting these cultural forces against them. And this was what changed my life. I went there. I was becoming a leftist, for sure. My parents, my dad in particular, were real hawkish people, cold warriors, anti-communists. I grew up really believing that the U.S. was the beacon on the hill and spread democracy and freedom. But after I went on that trip, I was there for a month in a war zone in Ocotal, in northern Nicaragua. And after I saw these very poor people being battered by the United States, I was like, wow, this isn't what I thought the U.S. was about. I thought we would defend these types of people. And by the way, Vast majority of them were Roman Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. They're killing these Catholic people. <laughs> Why are they doing this? They present no threat to us. And so that changed my life. When I got back, I became an anti-imperialist. And I never looked back. I never changed that worldview. And I maintain that to this day. And the next summer, I drove to Nicaragua from the U.S. with the Veterans Peace Convoy, with a lot of these veterans of Brian Wilson's type. Brian wasn't actually on the convoy because he was still recuperating from his injuries, but he did meet us down in Texas. I got to meet him then. And that was an incredible experience as well. And again, I just never looked back at that point. And I've been a real staunch supporter of Nicaragua and Sandinista since that time. Crap, I'm 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 crap,
You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. One of the things that I think people will remember when they hear Contra is Ronald Reagan and Ali North in the Iran Contra affair. And this had huge implications throughout our history. I think a lot of people became disillusioned at that point alone. But you also mentioned something that I thought was worthy of describing because what I often hear when people hear about revolution is they always complain about the bloodshed that the revolution brought on. The revolutionaries, the bad guys, as opposed to they're the good guys, the ones that are fighting back against the oppressors. And I'm never quite sure why that is because we celebrate our own bourgeois revolution here in the United States and we don't seem to have a problem with that. And I don't quite understand the national consciousness that allows that to be the case. But you talk in the book about how every piece of food was crunchy because the roads were all dust. And one of the things that the revolutionary forces did was they improved the country. They did build roads, hospitals, and schools. No, it was not everything everybody would want it to be, but I don't think most understand. And I know I didn't prior to reading your book that the revolutionary forces were up against nonstop counter-revolutionary forces, incursions into the people's will. And basically their spirits were down. Talk a little bit about the impact of counter-revolutionary forces on revolutions, in particular the impact of that in Nicaragua. Well, first of all, depending on the strength of the counter-revolutionary forces, they can undermine and destroy the revolution. Some revolutions are overwhelmed by the counter-revolution and are defeated. That did not happen in Nicaragua, though there was essentially an electoral defeat in 1990 due to the Contra War and the fact that the U.S. said that the Contra War would continue and the economic war would continue if they didn't vote against the Sandinistas in 1990. The people with a gun to their head did vote the Sandinistas out of power, but the Sandinistas weren't militarily defeated, and they would come back in 2007 after the 2006 elections. They would be reelected back into power and reignite the revolution, and this is when they're really able to build roads and build hospitals and whatnot, because at this point, the Contra War had been in the past. But counter-revolutions, in addition to undermining or destroying the revolution, certainly it can also have the impact of distorting the revolution. That is because many times the revolutionaries have to do things they didn't want to do to survive. And sometimes that means engaging in certain acts of repression. 
to destroy the counter-revolution. And we see this particularly with the French Revolution, with the guillotines, they had the terror. Uh huh. Russia had the Red Terror. China had the Cultural Revolution. So many times revolutions can take on characteristics that are bad and negative. But the point about Nicaragua is they never did that. That's the incredible thing about Nicaragua is they didn't allow themselves to be changed in that way, though they've been accused of that. Immediately, the Sandinistas suspended the death penalty. They released a bunch of Somacista National Guardsmen. That's how they were National Guardsmen who were able to be taken to Honduras and organized into Contras. They were actually very benevolent towards their enemies. And even in 2006, when Daniel Ortega runs for office and is reelected, his vice presidential running mate is a former culture leader. So the Sandinistas have gone out of their way to work with these people, to try to have peace and reconciliation. In fact, their government, their self-described name of the Sandinista government right now is called the Government of Peace and Reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so while a counter-revolution can really change the nature of the revolution, and it reminds me of this quote, be careful who you choose as an enemy because you may become like them. Ah. The Sandinistas never did become like them. And that is a tribute to them. And that's what I try to talk about in my book. And I think those who claim that they are like Samosa or whatever, they're just crazy. It's not true. And that's, I guess, why I wrote the book, is to say it's not true and show it's not true and to show what they've been up against. And that, yes, they could have gone down a dark path in order to succeed. But again, in 1990, they held an election they lost, even though it was a completely unfair election, because the U.S., again, was holding a gun to the Nicaraguan people's heads in the form of the Contras. But still, the Sandinistas, in response to losing the election, they stepped down. And they were not reelected for another 17 years. Oh. As I mentioned in the book, there is no revolution in the world that fits this pattern where a revolution came to power through armed struggle, lost an election. By the way, it should be pointed out the Sandinistas did win the 1984 elections. That's important to say. Those were the first free and fair elections held in Nicaragua. But they lost in 1990. No other revolution has come to power through arms, lost an election, stepped down voluntarily after that election, and then regain power through the ballot box, which is what the Sandinistas did. You cannot point to any other historical event like this. This is an amazing feat that they pulled off because they wanted to be democratic, small d democratic. They came to power through arms, but the goal was to make Nicaragua a democracy, and they have never backed off of that. You brought up a really powerful point about Ortega. And I want to make sure that this is brought out. He was, I guess, imprisoned. He was for seven years. Yes. By being in prison, he was around those kind of revolutionary contras and others. And in that time, he realized that there was a very weird gray line that was impossible to pinpoint good guy, bad guy. And that kind of informed his decision to be the reconciliation. 
I feel that's a really important point that his personal experience led him to be the great uniter later. I think that was powerful. Yeah. And by the way, he was tortured for seven years, made to eat his own feces and glass, and he was kept in a coffin. And the extraordinary things that happened to him were incredible. Seven years of this, he endured under Samosa. And as you said, he did encounter people there, including his own jailers, who he realized that they weren't well-educated, that they had their own prejudices, though these prejudices could be overcome through discussion. And he learned not to try to have this Manichaean view of the world, which is that there's a good side and there's a bad side, that it was more complicated than that that your peasant revolutionary could just as well have become a National Guardsman, depending on circumstances. Oh, and I'll give you an example of this. I actually dedicate my book to my good friend, Abby, to her brother who was killed. He was a Sandinista revolutionary. He was killed very shortly before the revolution succeeded. His name was Socrates Espinosa Munoz. He was killed June 28th, 1979, right before the triumph. Well, her family's very interesting because all of her family were Sandinista, including her mom, except for her dad. Her dad was a National Guardsman. And he didn't even know that the rest of the family was Sandinista till the triumph happened. Wow. And in fact, he was in jail. They discovered he was in jail under the Sandinistas after the triumph, and they actually got him out. And he realized, oh my God, you guys were on the other side the whole time. So again, how he became a Somacista, but the rest of the family, including his own wife, <laughs> became Sandinistas, and she was even hiding Sandinista soldiers in the house while he was out in other towns repressing people as a National Guardsman, and he didn't even know it. That's an incredible story. And near the end of his life, he told his daughter, my friend Abby, said something like, he urged her to continue to stick to her values, her Sandinista values. And he said that he was always a Somacista. He said he'll die a Somacista. He said that's the life he chose. But he urged her to continue believing in the Sandinistas. And he thought that that was a legitimate choice for her. And that was a very interesting thing. And again, life is complicated. And you found this with the U.S. Civil War. It's very famous, brother fighting brother and that sort of thing. And that's why in a civil war, in a civil conflict, the good guys who the Sandinistas were, they didn't want total victory. They didn't want to just eradicate their enemies because that would mean eradicating other Nicaraguans. They did want to win them over to their side. And they have tried very hard to do that. And they continue to try to do that. And that is very inspirational, but also makes me very sad when people claim that they're, oh, these repressive people or whatever, because the facts really don't bear that out. Right. So the 90s were dark days, as you call it. And the Sandinistas did not come back until 2007. Define the dark days. That was a long stretch of time. What happened during that period? Well, it was a very difficult period because 
the neoliberal governments that were in power during that time tried to roll back all the gains of the revolution. They got rid of free education, free health care. They started giving land back that was given to the peasants. They began to give it back to the wealthy landowners. In fact, the U.S. government pressured them to do that. And inequality grew during this time. Poverty grew during this time. Illiteracy, which had been largely wiped out, now began to grow. So they went back to really the Samosa years economically. Now, the good news was they didn't go back to the Samosa years in terms of repression because the police and the army were still loyal to the Sandinistas. Because the Sandinistas won militarily against Samosa, this allowed them to create a new police force, a new army of the people. So the one good news is while economically and socially the country went backwards, there wasn't the mass repression that happened under Samosa because the security apparatus was very much in the hands of the Sandinistas and therefore in the hands of the people. Let's jump ahead. Ortega was able to get elected. I find that fascinating to be, dare I say, like Lula here even. What was it that brought him into power? How was he able to generate the kind of populist support? What was it about his message that allowed him to take power back in 2007? Well, first of all, Danielle, between 1990 and 2006, began a very quiet campaign where he was going around the country, meeting with people privately. He'd meet with poor peasants in their home, eat the food they ate, these modest meals stay up late with them, talking and drinking. And first of all, he continued to be connected with the people, and that was important. But his message was that they wanted to continue the revolutionary process. They wanted to bring the education and healthcare back to the people, bring literacy back, give land back that had been taken by the neoliberal governments, give it back to the peasants, expand the land reform. And that they did want to have a reconciliation. They wanted to do all those things without provoking another cultural war because people did fear that. And that was a rational fear. And yeah, after 16 years of neoliberal rule, the people finally said, yeah, we don't want this anymore. We do think the cultural war is enough in the past that it's not going to come back, that we're going to risk it. And they voted the Sandinistas back in power. So that was an incredible feat as well. And again, he ran with the Contra as his vice president. Again, there's no precedent for this in history. It's a really an amazing thing that they accomplished. Truly. I want to ask you a more general U.S. imperialism question. It seems like the playbook of the U.S. is standard. Insert puppet government or a person destabilized region with CIA propagandize the American people to believe these are evil terrorists and then ultimately overthrow it and bring the IMF in to impose structural adjustments and debt peonage. How did they avoid some of the IMF implications? How did they avoid being part of that world that seems to eat up everybody else? Well, I think because they were very intentional about what they did, because it's a very well-organized society. Again, there is much popular support for the Sandinistas, and they use that as a mandate to reject the neoliberal policies that many other governments were forced to accept. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't accept some. They've had to accept some just because you're not an island. 
you live in this capitalist world. Unless you're like the Soviet Union, which was so big, and had all of these resources, it's very hard to fully resist being in the system. But they've been very intentional about living in that system, but also, again, using their resources for healthcare, for education, for building houses, for infrastructure. They've been very intentional about that. And it has not been easy. And again, the U.S. continues to try to overthrow that government. They continue to impose sanctions on that country. The Sandinistas have not allowed that to derail the social programs that they're trying to maintain. So that's just an amazing thing. The final piece that we want to touch on here is the April 2018 crisis. This is much more current pre-pandemic. Can you talk to us about that? So in 2018, the U.S. supported another contra-type violent insurrection against the Sandinista government beginning in April of 2018. Clearly, the groundwork for this had been laid for some time. In fact, there's a magazine article by a magazine funded by the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy, which talks about this, that the U.S. had laid the groundwork for this insurrection by giving millions of dollars to various opposition groups who planned this coup attempt in April of 2018. And part and parcel of that coup attempt was these gangs, basically, that set up these roadblocks known as tranques throughout major cities. There are thousands of these set up, which undermined commerce, undermined the economy. And also, the folks who manned those tranques carried out assassination of Sandinista cadre, of police officers, carried out billions of dollars of destruction of property, all an attempt not to just overturn the government, but to eradicate Sandinismo at its root. They destroyed Sandinista monuments and memorials. It was an attempt, really, to eradicate the revolution again, as the Contras had tried to do. But this really took the government by surprise. They didn't see this coming. And again, by the end, a couple hundred people were killed. Billions of dollars of destruction took place. But the very interesting thing that happened in it, which most people don't know about, because again, they try to blame the Sandinistas and the police for the violence. What happened early on in May of 2018, the Catholic Church in Nicaragua demanded that Ortega take the police off the streets, which he did. He confined them to their barracks for 50 days, 5-0 days. And during this time, the violence didn't decrease, it only increased, which showed who was doing the violence, not the police, who many of whom, by the way, were attacked in their barracks, but it was these violent insurrectionists. And by the end of the 50 days, the people were like, okay, we're tired of this. Get rid of these tronques. And by that time, the tronques were removed. And the people were very elated that that period had ended because they were really laid siege to by these insurrectionists from April till mid-January of that year. And I was there for the celebration on July 19th of the revolution, the 1979 revolution. But also, this was a celebration that they had now overturned another counter-revolutionary attempt. 
And that is the true story of what happened in 2018. And that is not a story that is told very often. Indeed. I think what is really important is that people not judge the struggle of others who are under oppression based on U.S. news media. We are dealing with some really horrific and very powerful people in the United States today. And we're watching as empire crawls back, as it loses its grip on aspects around the world and other multipolar groups joining forces with one another in trying to lead lives that are not oppressed by U.S. sanctions, which is a form of austerity, which is absolute murder. And I guess my final question to you is, how would you advise people to think of revolutionaries in general, people that have been propagandized by the Red Scare and don't have an understanding of all the different actors throughout history. Each of these characters has had violence against them. And I feel like people just don't have a real good framework for analyzing global affairs. What would your final thoughts on that be? First of all, the revolutions are a process. A lot of people think that with the Nicaraguan revolution, they'll say, well, the revolution happened on July 19th, 1979. No, the revolution continues. The triumph against Samosa happened then, but then there's many different phases of the revolution, and the revolution has gains and it has losses and it moves forward and sometimes has to move back, again, because of counter-revolutionary activity. And you have to look at it as a process and you have to judge it, not by any snapshot in time, but by the trajectory of the revolution. Is it moving generally in a positive direction? Again, even if it has some backward movement, Lenin talked about one step forward, two steps back, but is it generally moving in a positive direction? And I would say in the case of Nicaragua, it is. That over time, when you look at where Nicaragua is now, compared to where it was in 1979, it's night and day. You wouldn't recognize it. It has paved roads. Since 2017, the government's built 26 state-of-the-art hospitals that are free to the people. Literacy is nearly wiped out. They have almost 100% food sovereignty, which means almost all the food they eat, they grow themselves. The trajectory of the revolution has always been positive, and that's how you need to judge it. And they have not betrayed their basic values. That's really how you judge it. And I think by those markers, the Nicaraguan Revolution has to be judged very kindly and positively. I 100% agree with that. Please pick up Dan's book. It's Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance from Clarity Press Incorporated. You can get it pretty much any bookstore you like. Dan, how do we find more of your work? Well, I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. You can find my books at Amazon and at your local bookstore. If they don't have them, you can ask them to order it for you, or you can go to my publisher, Skyhorse Publishing or Clarity Press. I think those are pretty good places to find me. Also on Spotify, if you put my name in, you'll see a lot of podcasts I've been on. And yeah, those are good places to find me, I think. Absolutely. Dan, it was a pleasure. I hope I can have you back on. You're one of my favorite people. I really appreciate your work. 
Well, you made my day. For an author to hear someone say that, really, that's a pleasure. I'm thrilled to come back. Absolutely. This is Steve Grumbinum, the host of Macro and Cheese. We are a nonprofit. We survive by your donations and only your donations. So please consider donating to Real Progressives for a 501c3. Please, we need your help. And with that, Dan, thank you so much, sir. And we are out of here. Thank you. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives. I want the truth!